When I started campaigning, I knew very little about this issue and I was just overwhelmed by how much it was happening. I was talking to people I know personally and they were telling me of their experiences of having their images shared. If you marry this twisted idea of latent consent and entitlement to other people's intimacy with the feeling of anonymity that people associate with the online world, you have the perfect storm for toxic abuse. And that's what we're seeing. Intimate image sexual abuse is on the rise and the law is barely catching up. The Hearing, a legal podcast from Thomson Reuters. The Cross-Examination. Hello, I'm Becky Anderson. Welcome to this Cross-Examination episode of The Hearing. We're going to be looking at the legal issues surrounding intimate image abuse, or, as it's more commonly known, revenge porn. With recent allegations that a well-known content subscription service has a documented tolerance policy for the posting of illegal content, and the promise of stricter online harms legislation, I've been speaking to two experts about image-based sexual abuse. We'll be touching on subjects such as pornography, abuse and sex work throughout this episode, so please do listen with caution if those are sensitive issues. The Cross-Examination My name is Eleanor Michael and I am the co-founder of the hashtag NotYourPorn campaign. We are campaigning for the regulation of the commercialised porn industry in order to protect non-consenting adults, sex workers and children. We're specifically trying to combat image-based sexual abuse, otherwise known as revenge porn. Revenge porn is the term that is usually used to reference when somebody has taken an intimate image or video um, and what has happened is that the person that they've sent it to has disseminated it or distributed it online. Now, the problem with the term revenge porn is that it's very specifically rooted often in domestic situations or romantic relationships, but the non-consensual sharing of images happens outside of domestic relationships or um, intimate relationships. So what we often find with Not Your Porn is that it means that it excludes other people who have also experienced non-consensual image sharing. My name is Honza Cervenka. I'm a lawyer at McAllister Olivarius, an international law firm that focuses on combating discrimination and harassment in the UK and in America uh, with a particular focus on representing victims and survivors of intimate image abuse. Revenge porn is the original term. It's very much a child of sort of the last decade where a lot of the prolific cases that capture the attention of the media and the world were done in the context of revenge. An ex-partner using intimate images that uh, he found or was sent during the duration of the relationship to sort of seek revenge, the sort of scorned lover um, attitude to just uh, hurt the person that maybe broke up with them 
or to, in a very vile way, try to get them to come back. The second word in revenge pornography, porn, sort of acknowledging that these materials were often um, nude or erotic. But the more people have thought about it, we've seen some really serious problems with that label. Um, the next sort of stage, um, for a while, people called it non-consensual pornography, which was a step in the right direction because it acknowledges that um, it's not just about revenge um, and that the term revenge kind of presumes that the ultimate victim of this crime deserved it, right? That they did something worthy of revenge. Mm. Um, and that was seen as a problem. So the word non-consensual replaced the word revenge. And I think the word consent or absence of consent is probably going to pop up a lot of times as, as we talk today, because that is what really is underpinning this whole phenomenon. Um, but the word pornography was still in there. And a lot of people quite rightly criticized that because it, again, presumes that the material was created by the porn industry, um, that it was a commercial article that was uh, made perhaps by porn stars, which again, of course, in many cases, in, in most all cases, wasn't really the case. And so, so the term that is getting most traction now and is being embraced most widely is image-based sexual abuse. There are a lot of terms in circulation at the moment, such as intimate image abuse, which is preferred by the Law Commission. A term that I prefer to use is image-based sexual abuse. Um, and the reason I prefer that is because it's more inclusive of sex workers. And I think that that's also something that's really important to this discussion. The Law Commission believes that intimate image abuse is beyond the what's seen as you know, the typical situation of a non-consensual sharing of images in a relationship. It also encompasses deep fake pornography, um, sextortion, cyber flashing is coming under this umbrella term. But a lot of the time, those terms are excluding sex workers and from not your porn's perspective, we can't be having this discussion. We can't be talking about image-based sexual abuse or IBSA without including sex workers. A sex worker can, of course, be a victim of revenge pornography or intimate image sexual abuse. It doesn't matter how public their persona is or how explicit their um, online persona is. Everybody should have the autonomy over their body and what they do with it. In our patriarchal society, there's almost this twisted expectation that absence of barriers means a sexual invitation, almost like, like an open door policy, a presumption of consent. Sex workers, just because they, for example, have an OnlyFans account, doesn't mean that they consent and that we should start downloading and reposting their content elsewhere, that we should sort of have a have an expectation or, or an entitlement to their content, to their body, to the images of them. I think that's that's a that's a conversation that's been um, evolving for, for a long time. Um, for example, in the UK until at around 1991, laws did not recognize rape within a marriage. Mm. 
that of course seems seems ludicrous, right? But but there was this I think this expectation that if if you're married to somebody, there's almost like this latent consent. Of course, now as we would expect, rape can occur in the context of marriage, and it's recognized as such by the law. But the same attitude, I think, is ported online, where abusers think, oh. I saw this person nude once, therefore I'm entitled to see more. I talked to them on Grinder; they sent me nude photos, um, and therefore they're not—they're now mine to do with as I please. I can, I can, I can spread them further. I can um, publish them elsewhere. It's illegal and and, and amoral and and completely wrong. Um, and the problem is that people are still driven by this assumption that if you open the door to intimate contact with another person, however ajar, it's almost like a carte blanche for everything. A person takes a nude photo and sends it to somebody, therefore they must have known that it would end up online. It's almost that's a, that's a consequence that um, is, is natural, expected, and unstoppable. When, of course, if we pause and focus on the issue of consent, we see, well, that person just chose to share an intimate image with their partner. It was meant to stay private in that relationship. So if you, you know, marry this twisted idea of latent consent and expectation and entitlement to other people's intimacy with the feeling of anonymity and perceived impunity that people associate with the online world, um, then you have the perfect storm for toxic abuse. And that's what we're seeing right now. We're seeing that intimate image sexual abuse is on the rise and that the law is barely catching up. When I started campaigning, I knew very little about this issue and I was just overwhelmed by how much it was happening and I was talking to people I know personally and they were telling me of their experiences of having their images shared and pretty much every single time although the contexts were completely different it was this idea that and all of the women just to caveat all of the people that I'm talking about were women every single person it was about them feeling shame and demonizing sexuality and treating it as if you know, it's for sport. The numbers sort of tell a relatively straightforward story that um, a sizable majority of victims appear to be women and a sizable majority of the perpetrators tend to be men. But I've seen in, in, in my work and the sorts of cases that we, that we have handled at McAllister Olivarius that uh, the victims and perpetrators can come from all walks of life women certainly uh, commit uh, image-based sexual abuse against men um, it, it's not just a young person's problem we've had uh, clients in their 50s 60s that were um, unfortunately victims of this crime and uh, we often see for example um, current girlfriend uh perpetuating this against an ex-girlfriend of 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 the 
of the man in the middle, so to speak. So it's almost triangular. The more campaigning I've done, the reasons why people do it are just much broader than I initially considered. Um, and I think that it's you then have to put that into another context of that we have a changing online porn industry where there's less accountability, but there's further reach. And so how do we protect people who either are sharing their images consensually, but then are not consenting for them to be distributed elsewhere and are being exploited in some way, either by other individuals or by corporations or people who shared it with a partner or someone they're dating and they, those images have been shared much more broadly. I'm focusing on these two situations because I think that they are in many respects the most common, but that doesn't mean that those are the ones that happen all the time. What are the impacts and consequences for people when they suffer this sort of abuse? Loss of job, mental trauma, seeking counselling, but not necessarily being able to access it on the NHS. Um, some people have had the ability or are fortunate enough to be able to pay to go privately, but the level of shame and the lack of understanding by health professionals sometimes means that they don't feel like they have access to those support services because it's not necessarily looked at in a trauma in itself. Um, some people have been able to seek support through domestic abuse services because it's been tied in with other forms of domestic abuse. Some people have said that, well, they felt completely um, ignored by the police um, and felt as if they were alone. There has been community ostracisation. Um, some of the people that contacted us have lived in very remote villages in in the UK and have therefore felt as if they had to leave because the images of them that were non-consensually shared were passed around people in their village. Some people have been in the middle of custody um, cases with their ex-partners who have shared the images and those images have been tried to use against them in the custody battles. There have been a lot of studies done that show that queer people are at a disproportionate risk of becoming victims of intimate image abuse um, and also suffer uh, perhaps some unique harms in that context uh, in terms of um, uh, queer people being out, having their sexuality outed mm. or uh, being persecuted for it. In, in many countries, it is illegal to not be heterosexual and cisgender. Um, and so um, queer people, trans people that become victims of intimate image abuse and other types of online hate suffer very unique harms compared to a cisgender woman, for example. In terms of people who have come to us that are sex workers, they've said that they have suffered a, a loss to their income when their images have been non-consensually shared they feel exhausted mentally and emotionally because they are trying to retain control over where their images go but they can't they've been receiving misogynistic abuse um, from people that feel entitled to their images it's really all consuming and the trauma pervades every element of your life 
you share something privately with someone or in the case of um, an online sex worker, you share them on a particular site in order to sort of ring fence your business and protect yourself. And yet there's this sense of entitlement to put these images wherever people think that they have some level of ownership over them. I think now is probably an excellent time to turn to the criminality or the legal basis for these cases and how they differ from jurisdiction to jurisdiction. In the UK, the current state of affairs is that we have a criminal statute on the statutory books. We've had that since um, April 2015, when the Criminal Justice and Courts Act was enacted. Um, and that piece of legislation made it an offense for a person to disclose a private sexual photograph or film if the disclosure is made without the consent of an individual who appears in the photograph or film and with the intention of causing that individual distress. So it is a criminal offense to commit revenge pornography in um, England and Wales. It is an offense in many other countries around the world. The problem that just about every legislature is faced with is the what, what's called legally the intent element. In which situations should this be illegal? In England and Wales, the line was drawn at the intent to cause distress, which on a first glance makes sense. If Jim does this to Jane because she, she broke up with him and to um, uh, upset her and harass her, then of course it should be a criminal offense. The problem is that, as, as we mentioned earlier, people commit this offense in a whole range of circumstances that don't necessarily align with this intent to cause distress. People commit uh, revenge porn for sexual gratification. They do it perhaps to earn brownie points with their mates to, to show sexual prowess. But sort of, you know, they would say, oh, I just did, I didn't know they would end up online. I, you know, come up with all sorts of reasons why they did it other than to cause distress. And so in those circumstances, it would fall outside of the offense and therefore not be prosecutable and therefore be allowed to, you know, just, it, it happened. It, it wasn't technically illegal. Therefore, there's nothing we can do. So sorry, dear victim or survivor good luck, perhaps you shouldn't have done it in the first place. That's often the message that victims get given mm. when, they, when they try to report this crime. That, of course, is a deep problem. When the original law for IBSA was envisaged, so there's a 2015 law that, kept, that was passed in both England and Wales, and I think it was enacted maybe in 2016 in Scotland, Sex workers weren't included in that law. It wasn't envisaged that it would be used. It was envisaged that it would be used um, specifically for domestic relationships, essentially. Um, and it doesn't appear in the legislation to understand that harm can take greater form. And I think that that's, that's also a problem when we're thinking about cyber flashing is that there's a great emphasis on harm but actually what we should be thinking about is the violation of consent, whether that be cyber flashing, sextortion, 
revenge porn or IBSA in that form. And we need to be thinking that it's harm is such a difficult thing to quantify, especially when we're putting it as a legal threshold. The Law Commission has actually released uh, a draft report um, earlier this year, and it, it looks like they will be proposing to expand that intent element to capture more than just intent to cause distress, to make more of the conduct criminal. They're also looking at issues surrounding deep fakes, which currently um, would not be included in the offense. Uh, a deep fake is uh, essentially taking um, one person's face and superimposing it on a body of somebody else. So say a, a, a photograph of me, of my face being put on, um, upon a naked image of somebody else, making it seem as if this was a naked picture of me, which it isn't, but the current law would not recognize that as an offense. Those are all very welcome developments, unfortunately a little bit too late. Um, and of course the behaviors keep on changing. Back in 2015, it would be rare for deep fakes to enter the public discourse in a significant way because it was quite technologically difficult to make a convincing deepfake photography. But now with the advent of artificial intelligence and cloud computing, it can be done at the click of a button. So the law is always playing catch up. There is the online harms bill, which has been renamed the online safety bill that the pre-legislative committee has convened and is going to be reviewing in September, which is a very ambitious act to deal with a whole host of online harms where porn companies could potentially be regulated under this under Ofcom that seems to be the general idea but then we need to be thinking with that is well do Ofcom have the powers necessary to be able to really enforce moderation and compliance is it going to be enough for a multi-million dollar company is it going to make sense for them to go above and beyond to ensure safety and in my mind I I don't know how this would be done. This is something I ask myself quite a lot, but I think we need stronger criminal sanctions. Not only do we need to improve criminal laws, we also need to create civil laws. We need to create civil statutory avenues for victims and survivors of intimate image abuse to sue their perpetrator in civil court. Um, and right now, we do not have a statutory civil cause of action. The 2000 in the UK, the 2015 Act did not include it, mm. um, and and I think that's a and I think that's a mistake, um, for for a number of reasons. First, is that in order for for a person to criminally prosecute somebody, they need to go to the police, who need to go to the CPS. That gives the police and the CPS almost a monopoly on deciding um, what to investigate and what to prosecute. Yeah. And we have seen, especially recently, with the various reports being published about um, rape prosecution rates, that only about 3% of rape allegations result in a successful prosecution. 3%. Um, that is abysmally low. And we see a very similar trend 
um, in the context of revenge pornography. With civil law, it is a completely parallel track to criminal law. And a victim would approach a law firm to represent them and bring a case on their behalf, uh, perhaps to seek an injunction on their behalf to stop the, um, the perpetrator from continuing in their activities. And if uh, a, a judge, a civil judge grants that injunction and it's served on the perpetrator and the perpetrator continues nonetheless, then they're in contempt of court and sort of face criminal penalties that way. Uh, but it, it's all about giving people a clear legal avenue through the civil courts where the police or the prosecution service have given them no joy. Some countries around the world and some states in, in America do give a statutory civil cause of action. In England and Wales, that is not the case. Is there a jurisdiction that you think are getting this perfect or mostly right in terms of, of how they've structured their legislation? I don't think there is a jurisdiction that has it down perfectly, but Australia is certainly seen, um, I think, globally as being a major player and being um, really ahead of the game and probably the most advanced jurisdiction when it comes to the legislation that they have on their books. I think that now is a good time actually to talk more about the sort of the, the world of who's profiting from this. I think that you were right when you said that the, the term revenge porn and the way that it was originally talked about in the papers and the media, it sounded very much like a disgruntled ex seeking to get revenge on somebody by violating privacy in a way that they knew would really hurt them both emotionally, financially, and, and as you've even said, you know, possibly with custody cases. Um, but the proliferation of it now and the the increasingly hard ability to get these, uh, as I understand it, and correct me if I'm wrong, but the increasingly hard ability to get these pictures removed from sites on the internet starts to look an awful lot like somebody is profiting from it. We've criminalised the behaviour of an individual and now we need to start thinking about, well, how do we regulate, or what we should be thinking about is how do we regulate the companies? And I think that this distinction between the individual perpetrator and the company that is profiting from exploitation is one that isn't stated enough. The problem with porn is that there has been a massive rise in something called the amateur category, which means that people can make their own videos and upload them onto tube sites and um, porn models and therefore are available for everyone around the world to watch. And the issue with this is not with porn itself, the idea of viewing porn itself, although there are issues to do with what kind of content um, is viewed in porn. The problem is, is that the moderation um, and community guidelines that are in place don't do enough to protect people. Mm. And so you are right in saying that some people that we've spoken to have waited months you know, it could be anywhere from three to six months. One woman we spoke to has been consistently trying to get her images taken down off a niche fetish site for over a year and is getting no response because there are a number of hurdles that people face. One of them is um, just being able to contact the company 
and mm. um, being able to get through to somebody that can help them. That's the first one. Um, the burden is all on the survivor or the victim, depending on what terminology someone feels comfortable using. But up until recently, some of the major porn sites had a download button, which meant that even if you removed it, it could be re-uploaded within seconds. Big tech say that they are complying with regulations, that they're doing what is expected of them, and sort of giving us this this idea that there isn't anything they could possibly do more than they're already doing. Um, and I think that actually um, is a very interesting position to take. And in some ways, almost a, a, the right response, uh, because the original failure is in what the regulations require and what the laws require websites to do. The problem originated in my mind really sort of at the turn of the millennium when internet was really um, uh, gathering speed and in increasing in usage. And governments around the world have in quick succession adopted very similar laws around the liability of websites for third-party content. It was seen uh, that it would be unthinkable and illogical and go against our idea of justice that websites should be held liable for third-party content. The example that was discussed very often in the late 90s, early 2000s was this idea of a newspaper that decided to create a website and have a comments feature. And what if somebody posted something defamatory in those posts? Should the website be held liable? And the governments have decided, no, it, it, it shouldn't. The liability in these situations should be with the person who made that comment. Mm. And it was thought that this, this, was a, this was a great place to park it. Now, uh, it's not no longer 1998, we're in 2021, and the internet has changed vastly. We're now in, in the era where so much more is done online and so much more content is generated. If you've seen some of the statistics from the major porn sites such as Pornhub, you know, there are huge, huge levels of data being downloaded per minute. We almost don't have words for the, you know, numbers. We're far beyond mega, giga, tera. We're in, in a world where it's actually inconceivable how much data there is and how much is accessible on the internet. OnlyFans has mentioned recently that they employ, I believe, 500 content reviewers and that they uh, scan um, 300,000 pieces of content every day to make sure that it doesn't violate their terms of service. And at a feeding glance, those seem like big numbers. 300,000 videos uh, and pictures is, is a lot, but they don't watch every minute of them. And of course, the same laws still persist. Websites do not have liability for third-party content. And so that, in the great uh, tradition of capitalism, has allowed the industry to thrive in an unprecedented way. Some of the world's biggest, most talked about companies are 
one way or another, tech internet companies. And part of their success was and continues to be based on the fact that they just didn't have to face liability for the content that they that they host. They open their platform for anybody to upload images, videos to, be it cat videos on Facebook <laughs> or be it nudes on uh, Pornhub. And the law treats them the same. And so now we've had these tube websites like Pornhub, Xtube, many of which are owned by a handful of, of really big companies like MindGeek, sort of build their empire on other people's content, monetizing it, knowing very well that the more content that they have, the more visits are going to be drawn to the site, and those visits will generate more ad revenue. And since the law gave them protection from hosting that content, in most cases. Um, they didn't have to do much by background checking. They didn't have to check that every person who appears in a pornographic video on a website actually signed and gave explicit written consent to that video being shared on this platform in this manner. Whether it's purposefully an industry that is profiting off the exploitation of images and videos, that are without consent or whether it's happening inadvertently isn't the question. It's irrelevant whether it's purposeful or not. If you have systems in place that don't support the protection of online sex workers, non-consenting adults and under 18s, we mustn't forget that category of people that are affected by this, you are profiting from exploitation. As you're saying that and you're, you're kind of talking about um, sites who make a lot of money um, from videos which are um, image-based sexual abuse of a number of different varieties. Um, I think that the, there starts to become a really interesting question, doesn't there, around, as you said, profiting off exploitation and it's not whether it's advertent or inadvertent, um, but what it reminds me really strongly of, to bring it sort of back to a legal context in a way, is the Bribery Act. In 2012, the Bribery Act in the UK came out and it contained a section which said if your subcontractor, as a company, if your subcontractor commits a bribery and you um, profit from it, I'm, I'm paraphrasing here, I'm not quoting precisely, but if you benefit from your subcontractor's bribery, even if you didn't know that they were doing it, then that now becomes your bribery and you're liable to prosecution. The world of business suddenly got very scared because there was the sense of well, how can I control my subcontractors and obviously you have a much greater level of control in some ways between a subcontractor and a contractor than you might do between Pornhub and whoever uploads their videos um, but it reminds me an awful lot of that, that really that they are um, the way you get an industry to change is by saying regulation is going to make you change and I, I, you know, is there a space for legislation to say if you allow this information to continue up there after you've been alerted to its presence then you are now adopting the criminality of it. That's a really interesting concept and I think that that would work well I hope that that would work in terms of the porn industry. I suppose the difficulty with the porn industry is its global reach um, of these sites and actually being able to 
I suppose one of the defences is how can we possibly moderate that much content, which I don't know, it echoes <laughs> echoes what Facebook said several years ago. And I think mm. that, you know, under pressure, you have to. We're almost at the point where it feels almost impossible to walk back the clock. Our legislatures have allowed this business model that so many websites adopt. Um, but we're, we're at a place where we um, see the, the negatives associated with the fact that websites do not have liability for third-party content. And we've seen in the US, there was uh, a law enacted a few years back called FOSTA-SESTA, which in many ways is controversial, but one of its effects has been that websites no longer e enjoyed immunity from lawsuits that are based on human trafficking. And we have seen in the past 12 months that many large class actions are being filed against Craigslist, against MindGeek, the operator of Pornhub and many other PornTube websites, on behalf of human and sex trafficking victims whose um, videos, uh, or, or rather videos depicting them, because they're not, uh, in, in many cases, their videos, um, appear on these websites. And so we see increased scrutiny but the the problem is that we're already a decade if not too late the rate at which data is being uploaded and shared is increasing rapidly and the slow legislative process is really delaying and in some cases denying rights to people who have been harmed this goes all the way back to, I think, my training contract many, many years ago. And I trained as a solicitor and I did some intellectual property work. And um, at that stage in the legal industry, we were having some really interesting discussions about, you know, with the amount of information that goes up on, say, Facebook, how can they be liable for a defamation? Um, how can they be liable for something that... Um, somebody else has put up there um, when they're really just a, a pipeline. They're not even really a publisher. They're just kind of providing a megaphone for other people to shout through. And I think that that was the conversation we were having 15, maybe 20 years ago. I think that post-COVID, I would say we need to have a very different conversation. What is big tech doing? What are the companies that have this money that are making the money from the adverts and making the money from the subscriptions, which is including exploited content and image-based sexual abuse content? Um, what are they doing to help? And the reason being, the reason I bring up COVID, of course, is that one of the things which was very eye-opening to me over the course of COVID was how quickly and how easy it was for Facebook, Twitter and similar to crack down on misinformation. Yeah. Suddenly, overnight, we went from we can't possibly control what's going out on our site because all we're doing is providing a megaphone to actually there's something really serious here and we can put algorithms in place. We can put content warnings on information, we can grey out information which violates our community standards when it is as serious as a national or sorry, an international pandemic. I think that that suddenly changed the game of what we should be expecting from these sorts of large websites. I find it interesting that you have put a, a connection between porn companies and companies like Facebook and Instagram. I don't think that that's done often enough because essentially 
porn companies are just a different type of media online. And I think that the scrutiny that we've seen of Facebook and Instagram in the past, and there are a lot of changes happening structurally with Instagram at the moment with their new guidelines and um, monitoring systems and algorithm. So for me, it's interesting that there is that connection being made because most people don't between porn companies and social media. They see them as almost diametrically opposed. Um, but essentially, porn is a different type of media, right? So mm. those companies should be under the same obligations that we put under companies such as YouTube, LinkedIn, Instagram, Facebook. And I agree with you, the pandemic has shown us that there is much more that they can be doing to combat the content on their site or the exploitative content on their site. So I suppose that leads me on to my final question, really, and I think that we've touched on this a lot, but I think it'd be a good, a good idea to sort of round off our discussion by saying, OK, what are the top changes you'd like to see to the law to protect people better? And by people, I mean survivors, victims, and uh, survivors and victims who are also sex workers. One of the main things that I see on a day-to-day basis is a lack of education at key institutions of what image-based abuse is. So I think there needs to be policy changes within the police, within um, government institutions to understand that this is a key issue. And I'm not just speaking about top-level education, I mean all the way through the organisation, because we've had people come to us who have said that we've used the term image-based sexual abuse and first responding officers simply because you know they've not been they've not been taught this don't understand what that is and are not aware that there is a law in place where evidence can be collected and potentially taken through the courts and often a lot of these cases get mistaken for harassment so i think education of people that are supposed to be offering support services and helping in this area is really crucial in terms of support services we need more funding for helplines like the revenge porn helpline they are just doing a fantastic job but they can't be the people that are helping everyone they need more funding they need more support there needs to be more um collaborative action in this area in terms of support services and thirdly i think we need a more comprehensive look at the porn industry specifically so the online safety bill is great in theory. It's ambitious. It's something that, you know, is one of a kind on the global stage. But that's not going to deal with the nuances and the issues with porn. And I'm not just talking about image-based sexual abuse, IBSA. I'm also talking about the content of porn, protecting performers. We need to look at this industry because it is incredibly lucrative. It is you know, whether we want to admit it or not, whether people want to talk about porn or not, it's there in our cultures and in our society and it's prevalent and it's not going away. So we need to look at a way that, especially with online sites, how we can better structure them, put mechanisms and legal frameworks in place to be able to protect people um, without there being a sense of demonising sexuality and a very derogatory view towards the sex industry and I think that we can't we can't just depend on piecemeal pieces of legislation it needs its own framework. In an ideal world I would like to see more 
accountability and responsibility on the part of the websites to make sure that the content that's being uploaded to them is being uploaded with the explicit consent of everybody who is who contributed to it or um, appears in it. Um, and like you said, we've seen um, tech platforms be capable of rapid change and enforcement when it came to COVID misinformation. And every time there's a major election, uh, there seems to be a huge amount of change and calibration of their service possible very quickly. Uh, but until they are properly required by legislation and regulation to do this in this very big corner of the internet, they are probably unlikely to do it on their own accord. And so we really need legislatures around the world, as well as campaigners and, and activists to come together and demand this change. Listening to my guests, it seems that this issue is both staggeringly simple and achingly nuanced. The shame and consequences for people suffering intimate image abuse are deeply connected to how we view sex as a culture and how we treat and heap shame upon sex workers. The simplicity lies in consent, where it is given, by whom and when it is removed. And I think that I would agree that a new legal framework which is rooted in the principles of consent is the best way to navigate this and provide the protections needed for all the different victims. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed the episode, then please do like and subscribe and we would love to hear any feedback or episode ideas that you have. The Hearing. The Cross-Examination. A legal podcast from Thomson Reuters. To find out more, go to tr.com forward slash the hearing or subscribe via iTunes, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts.